Hey there, this is Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. I am Shanda Sung and I'm a comedian. And I'm Ashley Morgan and I'm a farmer. We have been best friends since we were nine years old. Welcome to our show where we teach each other all kinds of things that cover our wide range of knowledge and interests. And today's episode is about close calls. Ooh, close calls. Such yeah. a random topic, but I like it. <laughs> I know, I know. I like it too. I think it's fun to like, well, not, I get fun is not the right word. It's interesting <laughs> to hear about people who were like right there, you know, yeah. like things could have gone terribly wrong. I guess it's more fun than listening about when it does go terribly long, though that is entertaining as well. <laughs> Humans are twisted. We are. We're sick people. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had a close call? Um, the only close call I can think of was uh, when I was six, I almost drowned. Ooh. Yeah. I was pulled out of the pool. I was taken to the hospital. They told my parents that I would likely have brain damage. and That explains it. Yeah. <laughs> Classic joke. <laughs> that's why you can't tell your left from your right before uh, yeah, you that's could. What that's the only... If that's uh, that's what qualifies as brain damage, then I'll take it, I guess. <laughs> Though I will say, as you mentioned that, a follow-up on that episode, my dad texted me. I knew, I knew he had listened to the episode because he just texted me out of the blue that said, don't tattoo L and R on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dad, I won't. <laughs> I'm like... If you say so, I guess you just want me to be lost the rest of my life. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that was a close call. Nobody really knows exactly how long I was under or why, though there was, if I remember correctly, a bruise on my head, like I had slipped and hit my head and then fallen into the water or hit my head as I was falling into the water. And so... That's why I was under the water. A random person noticed me and pulled me out. And so if she hadn't done that, uh, my dad was distracted by my brother. So, you know, he's been my brother's been trying to kill me since day one. Apparently. Trying to snuff out the competition. (laughs) He probably saw me fall in and then was like, Dad, over here. yeah, so I mean, I suppose that's that's the closest call I've ever had. Knock on wood. Like, yeah, that's that's fine with me. Hopefully, that's the closest brush with death I have for a very long time. Get it out of your system early. Yeah, <laughs> when <laughs> when I'm too young to really be impacted by it, and all it does is traumatize my parents. Perfect. I have a joke. <laughs> uh, I've been writing about that. Um, about well during the lockdown i was listening to one of my favorite comedians mike berbiglia has a podcast where he invites comics on and they they work out material together they kind of write together mm, and one cool. of the things he talked about was like take the worst thing that happened in your life something that's not funny and write about that and see what comes out of it and so i'm like well i almost died this one time what's there <laughs> and i've got material that i've worked on and it's been fun to work on so yeah so i do have some jokes about it so if you come see me live you can request the drowning jokes i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so uh how about you any like close calls you spend a lot of time in airplanes yeah 
there were some a couple scary times on airplanes. I remember we were flying into Cleveland. We got struck by lightning. Oh my gosh. In through the tail, out through the nose, and it fried the electronic system. So the guys had no screens and they had to fly. They could see out the window, but they had to fly instrument blind. And <laughs> just the- looking out the window. Is that our exit coming up? <laughs> you think? Was that- <laughs> Pretty much. What's that sign say? Can you see that sign? <laughs> <laughs> but what was crazy was the boom was so loud. Yeah. It was terrifying. You like felt it in your chest. It hurt so bad and everybody's ears were ringing. And I was sitting in the front facing towards the back. So everyone, of course, looks at me and I try to lean forward and look out the windows. And I turned to one of the passengers and I said, look out your window is engine on fire. And he was like, nope. And I turned to the other guy, I said, look out your window, engine on fire. Nope. I said, "Okay, we're good then. Which we were just, we were in final descent, so we were already close to landing. But when we got on the ground, the flight attendant said, you know, what happened? I said, we got struck by lightning, dude. She was like, oh, man, I thought our cargo bin exploded and thought, well, we're going to die. It was good knowing (laughs) y'all. She was so (laughs) cavalier about it, though, just like, "Eh, just thought the cargo bin exploded. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Thought the cargo bin exploded. And how did, like, did you know right away, like, lightning, or was your brain kind of going through weird scenarios? No, I saw it out the window. I saw the flash. I saw... That's wild. I knew what was going on. I just didn't know how it affected. How often does that happen? I imagine it's not unusual. Uh, It happens, yeah. That was the only time it ever happened to me, but I'd heard of it happening before, for sure. That's crazy. And good on you for like, okay, I got to fix my face because everybody in this plane is looking at me and deciding if they're going to panic or not. Yeah. I had one other time where I had a moment of anxiety. We were going from Colorado Springs to Denver. And when the air comes off the mountains, it is very choppy and it can get very turbulent. And we have grades of turbulence And this Mm -hmm. was considered severe turbulence. And that's the one where you can't walk, you can't get up, bins are opening, and it's scary. Yeah. This was a late night flight. There were only a handful of people on the entire plane. The plane was dark. And severe turbulence usually only lasts a couple seconds. Yeah. But it can be dangerous if you're up and about and not expecting it. We were expecting it. We were seated. But this turbulence lasted a solid 10 minutes. Oh, my gosh. And that's just exhausting. It was exhausting because, again, I was sitting at the front. I was trying to keep my face calm, but my muscles were tight. I was Uh tense. I got tunnel vision really bad because I was trying to keep my emotions in check because I had never had severe turbulence like that. And I was like, this is too long. This is lasting too long. Uh, I'm freaking out. Like, this is not normal. This is not safe. And we eventually got turned around and went back to Colorado Springs. And apparently during the flight, it was not only scary for us in the back, but our captain, who's supposed to be our, you know, brave leader, (laughs) was had like panic attack in the cockpit and Ah. had a meltdown and was crying and freaking out. And the first officer had to hit him physically (laughs) assault him in order to get his shit together that's out of a movie that's a my god man pull yourself together 
Pretty much. We're never going to make it. And this is why we always have two pilots up front. Because one of them might freak out. So, yeah. So one can get slappy. (laughs) So once we got on the ground. Yeah, it was. It was really scary. Was he like a new pilot or was... no and he wasn't new he was just a wuss the guy he was, was a, wuss. a wuss nobody liked him he was a total pushover he was ugh. so maybe maybe that first officer like didn't have to hit him but he was like now's my chance man <laughs> if ever there was a chance to hit this guy <laughs> i've been now's waiting the to sock to this dude since the day i met him <laughs> What we really should have done is like that scene in Airplane where they everybody just lines up to hit the guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> just line up to hit him. And, man, I was just uh, just flying back from New Orleans just a couple days ago. And we had, I knew, I had looked at the weather that coming into Indianapolis, it was going to be raining. So I'm like, ah, oh, we're probably going to have some turbulence. And I've flown enough times, so like, I'm, I don't worry about that too much but the poor kid sitting next to me he had to have been in his early 20s and he was like this is my first time flying this is my first time to indiana we were kind of chatting he's from mississippi he's like i'm i don't know what i'm gonna do with all this cold i don't i'm i was like (laughs) do you have boots he's like i I bought boots i bought coats i bought all this stuff and so he was really nice but then we get some turbulence like some pretty minor turbulence but it went on for a couple minutes and he was like do we need to call somebody? Is everything okay? Is this okay? And I was like, this is perfectly normal. It's raining there. Like this totally makes sense. But yeah, the first time you ever feel turbulence, it's like, oh, this is the plane dropping out of the sky. Yeah. This is where we're going to die. Yeah. It makes you suddenly realize in all the time that you've been just sitting there kind of not fully realizing that you're just a tiny tube being thrown through the atmosphere like that realization has to come hurtling back to you and you're like oh I don't like this at all (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. it really after after that day I got very nervous around whenever there was turbulence and I was overly cautious if they said hey we're gonna have just a little bit of turbulence I'm like nope my ass is sitting down (laughs) you ain't getting me up Uh uh-uh nope been there done that I nope (laughs) And that seat you guys have is not super comfortable. No. Right? It's, not. it's like no. not a passenger seat. So Mm-mm. it's, yeah, you had to have been like kind of bruised and battered after getting jerked around like that for so long. Yeah, it was not fun. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty scary. Uh, there was a flight attendant, not my close call, but someone else's. A flight attendant told me that she was up walking through to collect trash and they hit a patch of turbulence that picked her up and she ended up her back was flat against the ceiling like oh her my spine gosh. was pressed against the ceiling and she landed back on the ground on her hands and knees and her shoes were five feet back in the aisle Whoa. it picked her up out of her shoes slammed her against the ceiling and dropped her back down on the floor wow that's crazy that she hit the floor and didn't like land on a bunch of people you know yeah it she didn't land on top of the seats actually now that i think about it it was the same girl i was with when we were struck by lightning the one who thought that the cargo bin exploded oh yeah she's like i don't give a shit anymore <laughs> yeah she's like nah we exploded whatever i don't care <laughs> like <laughs> i've made i've made my peace i've uh, said everything i need to say to everyone i've ever loved (laughs) i already took care of all this man i have no loose ends (laughs) whatever happens happens bring it (laughs) 
man. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, none of our listeners have a fear of flying because I don't think we helped. Yeah. Oh, boy, do I have some stories. Good stories, <laughs> bad stories, mechanical emergencies, medical emergency, crazy passengers. I have all sorts of stories. Oh, man. I really could yeah. make a podcast just on flight attendant stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. There you go. Tyler's got nothing else going on. You want to edit another podcast where <laughs> you guys just interview flight attendants? <laughs> he seems very enthusiastic about it, listeners. He's I he's taking down notes furiously right now. <laughs> Not only did he say no, he said fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> You want me to come home and from work and then listen to people talk about work and then spend hours editing people talking about work before I go back to work? <laughs> nope. No, thank you. I would listen to that for the record. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> All right. Well, when we're at ideas here, that's 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 the go to. There you go. But we are not out of ideas. We are chock full of ideas. Yeah. And today's idea is close calls. Let's get to it. That's a segue. Yeah. <laughs> I am up first. And uh, I suggested this topic for this episode because I read about this woman that I'm going to talk about in a meme, of course. <laughs> it always starts with a meme. So where I get all of my information through memes on various social media. So, yes, I, I read this in a in a meme about this woman who survived the Jonestown massacre. Ooh. And Jonestown's a hot topic right now because they're doing another movie, I think. I think that'll be coming out soon. So it was interesting to read about this. I I didn't know a whole lot. I mean, Jonestown was so huge that it's sort of just in the public consciousness. So I knew a bit about it, but I had never read too deeply into it despite the fact that Jim Jones is from Indiana. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like something that I would have looked into a little bit more, but I hadn't up to this point. And I know a lot of people do read a lot about him and know a lot about him. So if I fudge some of the facts on this, uh, I do apologize because this is my first delve into Jim Jones and and the horror that was the massacre at Jonestown. But most of what I was reading was sort of so I could get information about this woman specifically. Mm. And this woman is uh, Hyacinth Thrash, which is just an awesome name. It's a very <laughs> good name. And uh, Hyacinth Thrash was born in 1902 in Alabama. And she lived in Alabama until she was a young teenager. And then her family moved to Indianapolis. And they did that to escape the lynchings and really the racial violence that was so prevalent in Alabama at that time specifically. And they lived in Indianapolis where there was less racial violence, but still segregation, still a lot of racism in the community. And so when her sister Zipporah said, I saw this, this man, Jim Jones, on TV and he was preaching racial equality and integration, and I think you should check him out. He's from Indianapolis. So they went down and went to Jim Jones's 
church, the People's Temple, there in Indianapolis, and became followers of his church very early on. It was 1956 was when they joined his church. They were some of the first ones. And at that time, Jim Jones was very progressive. He was preaching racial equality, integration. He had an integrated congregation, which was extremely unusual for any church to have, but especially a church with a white preacher at that time, even in the North. He also claimed to be a healer, and he had advertisements even in, there was an, I was, the article I was reading that mentioned this was the Indianapolis Star, and they said he had an advertisement in this paper in 1956 that he had cured deafness in a woman. And uh, encouraging people to join his church so that he could heal them. And Hyacinth, her whole life, maintained that Jim Jones had cured her of breast cancer. And so she believed very much in his healing abilities and the things that he was preaching. And so the, the church grew. And she said at that time, he helped a lot of people. He was putting coal in black people's bins. He was providing them shoes. He was always willing to help somebody. At that time, he was really doing a lot of good, and that's what drew me in. She even sold her house for $35,000 and gave all the money to Jones. Oh, boy. So, yeah, she was fully on board, and her sister was too, Zipporah. And uh, in 1965, Jones was starting to get a little uh, paranoid <laughs> and <laughs> became very convinced that a, a nuclear holocaust was coming, that... Which I guess wasn't unusual for that time period in the 60s, mm. but he read in an article in Esquire that uh, if and when there is a nuclear attack, the best place to be is Eureka, California, because it's upwind of a lot of places that would be considered targets. It's bordered by the ocean on one side and by the mountains on the other side, and it's the best place to be. And he was all in on that idea, and he said we're moving. So he relocated his church, the People's Temple, and 70 of his followers went with him, including Zipporah and Hyacinth. And so they uh, they up and moved to California in 1965, continued their work with the church. Into the 70s, the People's Temple exploded, grew to thousands of people, thousands of followers, and extended into San Francisco and Los Angeles. And started to get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And Jones himself started to get some attention. Mm -hmm. And in that attention, some accusations started to come out from people who had left the church and accused him of certain types of abuse. He was arrested for public masturbation. Oh, he boy. was doing a lot of drugs. <laughs> and <laughs> so as this attention became a little more focused on him and as he started to get more and more paranoid... He decided that he was going to construct a utopia in the country of Guyana called Jonestown. And so he began constructing that in the 70s and built this, what he advertised as a utopia. And initially, when it was first built, they had 50 people down there building it and running it. And they got to the point they said, OK, we could take 200 people. And Jones said, that's not enough. This isn't happening fast enough. I'm bringing 600. And that's what he did. So Dang. 600 people came initially, and then 400 more people came later. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And they weren't, 
fully equipped. A lot of the people who came were elderly and children. And so those people can't really help as much in the operation of the camp. Mm -hmm. And so there was more of a need for services, medical service and food and things like that. And not enough people to do the heavy lifting, so to speak. And so things were starting to come apart at the seams. Not only because of logistical issues like that, but because Jim Jones was going crazy. <laughs> Crazier than he already was, if you can believe. It was probably all the drugs and masturbation. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Another thing that had happened was he was involved with a woman who was a member of the People's Temple. She became pregnant, and there was some dispute as to whether or not the father was her husband or Jones. And she, at the beginning, said, yeah, it is. Jim Jones is the father of my baby. And so the baby was born, and then she left the church, but she left the baby with him. And oh. then he moved the baby to Jonestown and that's when she started to be like nope I want this kid back that's not a safe place for him to be and so she started to try to get the attention of some people to get her son back from Guyana I'm getting a little ahead of myself <laughs> back up a little bit so once they were there in Jonestown he started to get more and more erratic according to Hyacinth he stopped healing she said he attempted to do these healings and they weren't working anymore. And she said she felt that he was getting stressed by that. Mm. And um, it was also shaking the faith of some of the people in the camp. And then he started going everywhere with 12 bodyguards, armed bodyguards. And if anybody started questioning Jones, they would be beaten and it was really Ooh. starting to become an oppressive lockdown. People didn't have enough. And if they tried to speak up about any of it, they were punished. And it was just getting worse and worse. And she said he would do things like just walk through buildings completely naked and all of this other erratic stuff. And it was becoming impossible for him to hide his severe drug addiction at this point. He's like, hey, guys, thanks for following me here. I can't help you, but here's my wang. Just out. <laughs> just, yeah. Just yes. the dong for all to see. You're welcome. Yeah. Now, sorry you're starving. <laughs> aren't, you, aren't you glad you left your families to fly all the way out here? Yeah. So he started, he, he really started to talk about that governments were going to be after them and the mercenaries are, were going to come and try to take them and take their children and kill all of them. And that there were people against them and really stoking that fear. And he would have these things called white nights, which were drills where he would sound an alert and all of the followers had to come to the main pavilion. And there would be gunfire from the surrounding jungle and they would have... All of people locked down. One of the drills took six days, but they didn't know it was a drill. Every mm. time this happened, they would make it seem more and more real. And then at the end of these people being terrified for hours or days on end, he'd say, OK, that was a drill. Now, so we're going to be prepared for when this really does happen, which it's <laughs> happening. It's definitely going to happen. And it, during one of these white night drills, it was so intense that he mixed up a bunch of Kool-Aid 
and said, we're going to need to commit suicide. And so you all need to drink this punch. And it was horrifying and, and intense. And then eventually everybody drank it and they're all sitting there sobbing, waiting to die. And he was like, that was a drill. There was nothing in the punch. You're all going to be fine. Uh. But it's good to know that you're prepared to do this. And so it's getting more and more intense, more and more terrifying. People are trying to escape. And uh, the kid I mentioned earlier, the mother who had been trying to get him back, got the attention of a congressman from California named Leo Ryan and said, what's going on down there is not good. My son is being held against his will, my will. And more and more people who were his constituents were saying, I have family members who are in Guyana. They're being held against their will. They're being abused. And this congressman was like, all right, I'm going to go check it out. So he got a hold of uh, Jim Jones and said, I'm going to come down and see your operation. And Jones was like, no, no, you're not. And he's like, well, yeah, I am. I'm coming. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, I guess. And so... Congressman Ryan went down with a crew from NBC and some of his staffers, and they went down to Jonestown and interviewed some people, and some of the followers slipped him notes that said, help us get out of here, and they did eventually, they left earlier than they were planning, and they took some of the followers with them who wanted to escape, and Jones let them walk out. And they left. They went to an airstrip nearby. And as they were boarding the plane, a truck full of gunmen drove by and gunned them down. Oh, no. Ten people survived. Five of them were killed, including the congressman. Those were Jones's people, obviously. Yeah. They came back to Jonestown and told Jones, we didn't kill them all. And so he said, well, then word is going to get out and they're going to come for us. Just like I said, they always were going to. So this is it. But that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Uh Like, I told you guys they were coming. I mean, I started this war, but I told you. (laughs) I mean, I had a congressman killed. So how surprising that somebody would want to come here after that. (laughs) We're we're not dealing with a sane person. (laughs) Obviously. So he, he called another white knight. And Hyacinth heard the call, the alert, and said, I'm not going. And her sister said, we, we've got to go. And she said, I'm not. I'm not going to go. I don't want to be shot. I'm, I'm staying here. And she crawled under her bed. And her sister and her roommate went down to the pavilion. And there was gunfire all night long. Don't know if it was coming from Jones's bodyguards or from the mercenaries that they said would always come. But Mm. she just laid under that bed saying, well, if they come in here and raid, maybe they won't find me. And eventually she was there so long she fell asleep. And she woke up in the morning and went out and went down to the pavilion and just saw bodies everywhere, including her sister. Oh, no. She ran through the compound screaming, I'm the onlyest one alive. I'm the onlyest one. Everybody's dead but me. What am I going to do? And because she was the only one left alive in the compound. A few people had escaped into the jungle, but she was the only one who was still there. And she was there for a day until the troops from the Guyanan 
military came and found them and rescued her and took her out. But just there for an entire day with a sea of dead, there were 909 people died. Oh 304 of them were kids. Oh, my gosh. There was a recording. Um, Jones, had, there was an audio recording of him telling these people to kill themselves. And he said it was a rebellious suicide to say we are all going to commit suicide together and move into a plane of peace. And this is a radical to tell them that we won't stand for the ills of the world any longer. And his wife objected in the recording to specifically to killing the kids. Mm -hmm. And he shut her down. She was one of the dead. He had been shot. They think that he had one of his bodyguards shoot him. And uh, they ruled it suicide. Um, there were a few people who had been shot. Most of them, it was cyanide poisoning in Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid. Hmm. So the famous term, drinking the Kool-Aid, which is really fucked up to think about. <laughs> You know, I've used it before, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid. But like, what a glib sort of saying to a mass casualty of 909 people. There's still some speculation as to how many of the people willingly drank it, how many people were forced it, if they may have been injected with the poison to some point. Obviously, children cannot be willingly participating in something like that it can be ruled a, a mass suicide to some degree but it's murder it's murder yeah so hyacinth survived woke up that morning found this sea of dead i can't imagine what that experience was like to spend an entire day just wandering around seeing people that i mean she had followed this man because this happened in 1978 she had been following him since 1956. Wow. She knew these people. She had been living with these people. One of them was literally her family, but everyone else, you know, she said that we were a family. Yeah. That was the appeal to the church all along was the people who were involved in it and the oh. good that they wanted to do, you know. She came back to Indianapolis, lived uh, several years with some family members and then was moved to a nursing home facility and she died in 1995 at age 90 and she did write a memoir called the onlyest one alive and you can read it i believe it's one of the only books that's written from in a first person account of someone who was there because like i said there were some people who were there who ran into the jungle and managed to escape the basketball team the Jonestown basketball team were out of town at a game. So they survived. And that included a couple of Jones's sons. Wow. So that is my close call. That's uh, Hyacinth Thrash. What an amazing story. Yeah. Although when you were talking about drinking the poison flavor aid, I wonder how many people, not to, not to make fun, but it's what we do. Yeah. Uh, how many people were like, okay, here we go again. Yeah. Glug, glug, glug. It's probably another drill. <laughs> yeah. Here I go. And then when people start dropping dead, they're like, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> it's go yeah. time. And there, there may have been some of that. I think that 
he had announced to people that Congressman Ryan was dead. And so I think that they knew shit's different this time. Yeah. So, yeah, there may have been some of that was like, is he really dead? Like, is this? I don't know. The feeling had to be different. You know, he had to be acting differently because he knew that shit had hit the fan, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and like this was it. So pretty interesting. I may do a little bit more reading up because it is just interesting you know, I can't remember who's supposed to be cast in this new movie. It's supposed I if I remember right, there's some big name actor that's gonna be playing Jim Jones. So I'll probably watch that when it comes out. It's such a wild story. I hope they really stick to the actual events. Yeah. I like when things are pretty close to accurate. I, and with this, like there's no need to make shit up. Yeah. You can't make that shit up, you know? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, and until um, September 11th, this was the largest loss of American life at once that was not a natural disaster. So, oh, wow. Yeah, even though they weren't on American soil, you know, they were Americans. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that is my story of my close call. I'm Good excited one. to hear about yours. And, uh, yeah, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and hear what you have to say. All right, and we're back. My close call that I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about Margaret Brown, or, as she is more commonly known, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. I will always only picture her as being played by Kathy Bates. This whole research that I did, I just kept picturing Kathy Bates. <laughs> she is the only Molly Brown yeah. <laughs> that exists in my mind. <laughs> so she was born Margaret Tobin in Hannibal, Missouri, July 18th, 1867. It's a hometown of uh, Mark Twain. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Fun. Parents were Irish immigrants, and the family lived in an Irish shantytown. Margaret was the youngest of six children, and she went to school until she was 13, but then she had to leave to work in order to make money for her family, because they were yeah. pretty poor. So she ended up working in a tobacco factory. When she was 18, she moved to Leadville, Colorado with a couple of her siblings, and she ended up working in a department store. So step up from a tobacco factory. Yeah, yeah. Had <laughs> to smell better, at least. It was in Leadville that she met and married James Joseph Brown in 1886. It's so funny. There's something really cute that she ended up saying about her marriage to James Joseph Brown. She said, I wanted a rich man, but I loved Jim Brown. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. Finally, I decided that I would be better off with a poor man whom I loved than a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. So I married Jim Brown. (laughs) Sick burn. (laughs) No, it's sweet. Come on. It is sweet. It is. It is. Yeah. I too like to think I married for love and not money. (laughs) Right? Yeah. 
But yeah, they married, had a couple children. She had a son in 1887 and a daughter in 89. I will say, though, she married for love and not money, but he did not stay poor for long. They as a family did not stay poor for long. (laughs) They became very wealthy. He was very smart, self-educated, had an engineer's mind. He was just a very smart, smart guy. He came up with a more efficient way to mine gold and copper for the Ibex Mining Company. Okay. So, yeah, she made a bet and it paid off. (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, thanks, bud. Here's 12,500 shares of stock. Hot damn. And you can have a seat on the board. That must have been uh, a quality idea. Yeah, I think it was a better or easier way to open up the shafts or open up the mines to get in there better. I'm not exactly sure what his deal was, but it was apparently a pretty big deal. Nice. So in 1894, they as a family moved to Denver and became part of Denver society. Mm -hmm. Margaret was very big in philanthropy. She was all about women's education, working with children. She was very into human and labor rights. She actually worked with a prominent judge and helped establish the juvenile court system, which was essentially what became today's juvenile court system. She kind of helped start that. Interesting. So she was very much about helping her community, helping people who were down on their luck, helping Mm -hmm. children and women and laborers to have access to more rights, education, things of that Mm -hmm. nature. Not sending children to adult prison. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. And it was probably because she grew up poor. She knew what it was like to work at a factory at 13 years old. She Mm -hmm. probably grew up with a lot of those delinquent kids who just were a little wayward. Not, Not necessarily bad people, but needed some guidance. And so her heart was in those kind of philanthropy issues and whatnot. She was also very good at fundraising. She wasn't just pouring a lot of their own money in. She was getting others involved as well. Mm-hmm. While that is what she did for other people, she also did for herself. She became immersed in the arts. She was mm-hmm. very well-versed in that area. She also learned French, German, and Russian. She was very good at languages, picked them up very quickly. She also ran for Congress in 1909 and again in 1914. So she was a busy gal. Yeah. But what she is probably most famous for, at least to the rest of the U.S., (laughs) outside of Denver, Mm -hmm. was her adventures on the Titanic. Yeah. In April of 1912, when Margaret was 44 years old, She was on a European tour with her daughter, who was around 23 at the time. She got a message that her son's baby, so her first grandchild, was ill. And so her and her daughter had a talk and she says, well, I want to go home. And the daughter says, well, I'm going to stay. So yes, you go on home, take care of the family. I'm going to stay here for a little bit longer. And so... Margaret just booked the first available steamship home. 
And it just so happens. It just so happened to be the RMS Titanic. Wild. And of course, she booked a first class ticket. So when the ship struck an iceberg and started to sink, she was one of the first people on a boat. Right. She was in lifeboat number six. But even while she was on the boat, she was still helping. Mm -hmm. She was trying to keep people's spirits up. She would even help row the boat at times. She argued with the quartermaster who was in charge of that boat. It was quartermaster Robert Hitchens. And she argued with him saying, we need to go back. We need to help people. And he kept saying, no, we're not going to do that. They could swamp the boat. They could tip us over. Then we're all going to die. Do you want that? And she was like, we got to do something. And he was like, well, we're going to wait. And so that scene in the 1997 Mm -hmm. movie Titanic with Kathy Bates, that scene where she argues with the guy in the boat, that's pretty accurate. Wow. (laughs) Once they were rescued, she even helped with a lot of the rescue efforts on the other boat. Mm -hmm. She took down names of those who were on board. She helped to translate for those who didn't speak English. I was going to say, yeah, that was probably helpful if she knew the multiple languages. French, German, and Russian. So, yeah. Yeah. She also collected money from any of the first class people who were willing to donate and give it to the second and third class people Mm -hmm. to help them out. Because, I mean, think about it. They didn't have anything. And it's easier for the first class people to maybe even get money yeah versus the second and third class people who you know would have struggled really bad but she helped them out as best she could afterwards she was honored they say for her grace and her composure during that incredibly crazy stressful time but then also her contributions not only monetarily but the effort she put in to actually make sure that people were taken care of. Yeah. On the lifeboat, but then on the rescue boat as well. Yeah. And afterwards. So she did an amazing job doing that. And in an interview, when they asked, how were you able to cope and survive through this? She said, it's that typical brown luck. We're unsinkable. And so that's where... They ran with the unsinkable Molly Brown. Hmm. But it gets even better. (laughs) Okay. Okay. She then used her fame from surviving the Titanic Mm -hmm. to continue and further promote the issues that she was very passionate about. Yeah. Like women's rights, workers' rights, education, children's literacy, and also historic preservation. Those were the things that she was very passionate about. And she then used her now famous and recognizable name to fundraise and promote those issues. Yeah, that's a savvy lady. Also, in World War I, she started a committee to rebuild France. Essentially, what had been devastated by World War I, she helped to try to rebuild and fix a lot of what was destroyed in France during the war. She also helped wounded French and American soldiers during and after. So this lady was just doing it, man. Yeah. (laughs) 
She eventually died on October 26, 1932, at 65 years old from a brain tumor. Mm. Of all things to get her, a brain tumor. But it was amazing the thought of her and the Titanic because that's kind of what she's known for. Yeah. Surviving the sinking of the Titanic. But she technically wasn't even really supposed to be on it. Yeah. She wasn't scheduled for it. It was a family member fell ill. She felt she needed to go home immediately and took the first available ship. And it just happened to be that. What unfortunate bad luck. Yeah. But then she took that horrifying situation and and leveraged it to to get things done. Exactly. Exactly right. And another close call is that her daughter stayed behind. Yeah. Which her daughter probably would have survived too because she would have been first class as well. But you you don't know. You know, you yeah, really can't. Yeah, you never know. How those things might have changed. But at least her daughter wasn't subjected to that, you know. Yeah. But yeah, what an amazing woman. I, of course, knew about her from the movie. Mm-hmm. But I also, when we lived in Colorado, we went to a play. There's actually a th- a show. Yeah. That is called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And Tyler and I went to that show at a small theater, and it was the first stage production I had been to in a long time, and I loved it. It was not only a fun show, but, you know, we're theater nerds. We love that crap, so I liked it. This is a lot better than the last show I saw, which was Golden Age of Broadway at Eastside High School 2004. (laughs) It's like, wow, this is what professionals look like? Amazing. (laughs) They they look great. (laughs) Yeah. I am. Why aren't they doing nothing but jazz squares? <laughs> right? Jazz square grapevine. Jazz square grapevine. <laughs> That's only choreography teenagers can do. Yeah. But yeah. And then living in Colorado, her name is around on, yeah, sure. on a lot of things. And, you know, of course, being as big as she was back in the day. So I've I've always kind of known her, mm-hmm. known of her, but it was this that really really led me down the path of, wow, she is an amazing woman. She knows what it's like to be downtrodden. And she not only used her wealth to build people up, but then she used this tragic event that gained her some fame from it and was then able to continue pushing issues for another 20 years. Yeah. Until something as silly as a brain tumor gets her. (laughs) Yeah. She survives poverty, mining towns, Denver society, the sinking of a ship, and then gets <laughs> yeah. gets taken out by a brain tumor. Go get those chronic headaches checked out, kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can sink Molly Brown. Man. Yeah, that's cool because, yeah, she was sort of on the periphery for me, too. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it's cool to learn a, b- a little bit more about her. I'm sure there are books. Oh, yeah, for sure. Although I didn't read any this time. <laughs> <laughs> you you mean you didn't mention her and then Tyler didn't run over to the bookcase and pull out four books and hand them to you? That's just pirates. That's <laughs> just, just pirates. I think he's got like 10 Jimmy Buffett books, too. So <laughs> there can't possibly be that many. Uh, look it up. I think there's at least eight. <laughs> but that's all I really had to say about. The unsinkable Molly Brown. Short and sweet. 
Cool. This was uh this was a fun episode. It's those yeah, it I think was. uh we may be able to get a part two out of this. I think so too. Close calls are interesting stories. Yeah, I love it because it's just a little bit of fate stepping in in certain times or whatever you believe in, however yeah. you believe that is, fate or God or whoever your spiritual being might be. But yeah, if I love when if one little thing had been different, right? how their whole life would have changed. Yeah. You know, what if the baby hadn't gotten sick or what if it was a day later or yeah. what if any number of things and for yours what if he hadn't run so many drills she would have gone down yeah yeah what if she had gone down what if he hadn't run so many drills that scared her into staying under her yeah. bed what if she had gone with her sister you know so mm -hmm. many things that if if it had been just ever so slightly different how it would have been a whole different turn of events but i love that stuff that for sure it's always trippy and i like it and yeah <laughs> But speaking of events and fate, what do you have coming up? <laughs> uh, I don't know that any of uh, the things I have come up are fated to be. Maybe you could get discovered. Jimmy okay. Fallon could be in the audience saying, I want you on my show. I want you to yeah. replace me. <laughs> um, David Letterman did go to an open mic at uh, the Crackers Comedy Club in Indianapolis once. Right. I was not there. Oh. Yeah. Which will be... An ongoing regret. <laughs> I was a, a, yeah, when I was very small, I was very into David Letterman. I would talk about him a lot. And anytime there was like a big building we would drive by in Fort Wayne, I would say, David Letterman? <laughs> I don't know. Weird kid. Um, before I get to what I'm doing, which is a lot of stuff, I do want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Amy Ooh. Fry. She listens and because she, I saw her yesterday and she was like, yeah, I drive for work and uh, I've been listening to you at work. And she was like, I didn't. I'd, it sounds weird to say that. Like, I'm like, like, it's creepy to say it to you. And I was like, it's a podcast. We put it out. That's why. Yeah, no, <laughs> so, you're doing exactly what we want you to do. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, yes, Amy, I hope you have a good night at work. And uh, thanks for listening. And I'll see you at wrestling practice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I do have quite a bit going on. I think the next thing as of this release is New Year's Eve at the Comedy Attic. If you're anywhere in the Bloomington periphery, come check it out. It'll be good. There's an early show, 8 o'clock. So if you want to just do that and then go bring in the new year somewhere else or just go to bed, you can. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also a 1030 and then we'll do a champagne toast afterwards. I'm, I've been working hard to get ready for these shows. I'm very excited about them. And then January 7th and 8th, I'm going to be at the Comedy Caravan in Louisville with my friend Madelano Martin. I'm featuring for him. Um, January 14th and 15th, I will be at The Independent in Detroit, headlining that club. And January 20th, I'm going to be in Louisville at Gravelly Brewing. And January 23rd, I'm also going to be in Louisville at a show called Momix, which is Mom Comics. <laughs> um, so I've been... Uh, that show, I've been kind of being ch chased by them for a little while. Like, I, I wanted to be on one, and they didn't have room for me, and then they asked me, and I wasn't available. So I'm excited to finally do it. So I'm spending a lot of time in Louisville in January. So yeah. if you're down there anywhere in that area, come check it out. Yeah, that's it. So what do you have going on? Just battening down the hatches? 
<laughs> pretty much. Yep. Gearing up for Christmas time. So mm. I do a fair amount of baking this time of year. If you are looking for an interesting and maybe a little different cookie recipe on our website, crimsonmoonfarm.com, I have an orange cookie recipe that is so good. Oh, man. Yeah, I was looking at that. I need to make it. It's good and it's easy. It's very easy to do. I love it. I made a batch for Thanksgiving and I only took half of them and I left the other half here at home. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you guys get 12 cookies. That's it. The rest are mine. <laughs> That's all I made. I'm sorry. We have a very tiny oven. Yeah. I it's don't all know I had. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I plan on making another batch for Christmas because they're good and they're easy. And it, the recipe comes with icing. If you want to do icing, we usually just put a little powdered sugar on the top because it's, yeah. I don't like over, overly sweet. So the yeah. icing is a bit much, but hey, if that's your thing, do it. Yeah. But yeah, so crimsonmoonfarm.com, you can find recipes. We're also still on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram. So find us there. All right. Good deal. You can find me also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok shanda sung and uh you can find the podcast on facebook or instagram at passing notes with ashley and shanda or you can email us and let let us know you're listening it's not weird tell me you're listening no we love why we're here we want to hear it it's good for my ego (laughs) so yeah you can reach out to us on uh, you can send us an email if you want at the passing notes podcast at gmail.com and i hope you share the show with your best friend Yes, indeed. And like every week, I want to thank my husband, whom I married for love and not money. <laughs> Just waiting to hit that hit big on that big idea. Boy, it's been 11 years. Where's uh, <laughs> where's that cash out, bud? Yeah, where are those mining ideas, man? Come on. <laughs> You're not working hard enough. You're too busy, uh, too busy hanging out with us, slu- us schlubs. <laughs> I know. We're distracting him. <laughs> I, I know. We really are. <laughs> But we want to thank you all for listening as well. Hanging in there for 37 episodes. Feel free to reach out to us. Tell us about your close call. Want to hear it. We want to hear your scary and exciting things that happened to you. <laughs> for Shanda Sung, I am Ashley Morgan. Join us next time on Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. Your knuckle crack Tyler registered on the thing. <laughs> yeah. I- that's a you problem. You're going to have to edit that out. <laughs> Here, let me do mine. Everybody there crack. Everybody get your burps and farts out. Everybody crack out. all your bones. Uh. <laughs> get the chugging. <laughs>